Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see so many of you in the room um, and here on Zoom and YouTube as well. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Joe, and I'm excited to be able to continue our series on the Lord's Prayer together, um, where we're thinking particularly about uh, what the Lord's Prayer teaches us about the God to whom we pray. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to begin in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Um, so far, we've heard uh, from John that God is our Father who chooses to adopt us as his children. Um, and then Caleb unpacked the powerful impact of understanding God's holiness. And then Jenny took us through the three words, your kingdom come, uh, considering how we can lift our broken world to our Father. And then Ben showed us how to say, your will, Lord, not mine, as we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Pippa spoke to us about bringing our needs and wants before God in asking for our daily bread. And then last week, Caleb shared about the unlimited forgiveness of God as we forgive those who've sinned against us. So I need you to bear all of that in mind uh, as we come to the next line of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, uh, where Jesus instructs us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it should be a nice light one anyway. Um, let me take you through what I'd like to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to start by clarifying some of the language in this petition, um, looking at what it is we should really mean when we pray this line of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and then we're going to look at three things that this teaches us about God, and then finally what that means about the disposition of our hearts as we pray. Okay, so to begin with, it's worth taking a bit of time to work through some of the language. What do we actually mean when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? because it's one of those phrases that's come down to us and we're perhaps overly familiar with without perhaps knowing fully what it is we're trying to say. I've certainly found that to be the case anyway. The language in the traditional Lord's Prayer as we pray it, even updating the thys and thine uh, to you and yours can be quite stilted and old-fashioned sounding to our ears. So for what is Jesus instructing us to pray? Um, well, we need to dig into the language a little here. I'm going to move quite quickly, so bear with me, and I'll try and make sense of it all at the other end. Um, so let's split it into two um, and deal with lead us not into temptation first. Uh, what does this actually mean? Would God be in the business of leading us into temptation if we didn't pray this prayer? Do we need to try and convince God of what might be best for us as we follow him? We read in the book of James in the New Testament that God cannot be tempted nor does he tempt anyone. So to what is Jesus referring here? Well, what we would translate into English as lead us into um, is the Greek word aesferon, uh, which means literally to carry inward. It's the same word used in Luke's gospel uh, when a paralyzed man was brought in before Jesus. It describes something that's done to us outside of our control. Just as the paralyzed man required the actions of his friends to bring him before Jesus, being unable physically to do that for himself. The way similar language works here and elsewhere also suggests a permissive nuance, by which I mean, rather than lead us not into temptation, we have let us not be brought into temptation. Do you see the difference? It is subtle, but it's, it's slightly less of a direct action by God and more about God allowing something or not. And then we have the word itself translated as temptation. In the original language, this word is pyrasmos, which means literally a putting to proof. It's used to mean a trial or testing, uh, as in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, which describes a trial that's coming on the world through which the church is preserved. 
And it can also mean a temptation to sin or to falling away. In Mark's Gospel, as Jesus is speaking with his disciples shortly before he's arrested, he tells them to pray that they may not fall into temptation. That the events that were soon to unfold around Jesus' arrest and crucifixion would not lead them to fear and to fall away. So stay with me, we're halfway through um, my introduction. In the second half, we see, but deliver us from evil. So the word deliver is the Greek ruamai, which means to rescue from or to preserve from. And this is used uh, in a prayer of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 17, where Jesus prays that God would keep the disciples from evil. And in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, where Paul is asking for God to guard the church against the evil one. And lastly, the word we translate as evil is the word poneros in the Greek. It can mean either evil, so something which is hurtful in effect or influence, or the evil one. There's room for either reading in the Greek. And depending on your preferred translation, you might have it written directly as deliver us from the evil one, um, or you might have a little footnote just explaining the option. Given Matthew's use of the term and the train of thought in his gospel so far, the probable reading here is the evil one, who's also known as the devil or Satan, and more on him later. So you don't have to take uh, my word for it. Um, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson explains it like this, and you can always tell a serious theologian by two initials followed by a surname. Um, He first digs into some finer points of Greek grammar and Matthew's other use of the term temptation to build his case. He then goes on to say, thus the Lord's model prayer ends with a petition that while implicitly recognizing our own helplessness before the devil, whom Jesus alone could vanquish, delights to trust the Heavenly Father for deliverance from the the devil's strengths and wiles. So I've tried to be brief, but I've kind of rattled through that quite quickly, I get that. But taking it all together, I'd like to suggest a paraphrase that unpacks the meaning a little from this line of the Lord's Prayer and that will hopefully help us to get under the skin of what it is we're trying to pray. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, perhaps we're really saying... Lord, do not let us be brought into trial or temptation that results in a fall, but rather preserve us against and save us from the evil one before whom we are helpless without your deliverance. I'll say that again. Lord, do not let us be brought into trial or temptation that results in a fall, but rather preserve us against and save us from that evil one before whom we are helpless without your deliverance. And uh, there will be order forms available after the service for that written on a fridge magnet. Um, Not really. Okay, so let's think a little more deeply about this then. What does this line of the Lord's Prayer teach us about the God to whom we pray? I want to suggest three things this morning. Um, We'll see that our God is a God who firstly disciplines sinners, secondly disarms Satan, and thirdly delivers saints. So firstly then, God disciplines sinners. Ouch. Discipline and sinner are probably two words that aren't nurturing the most cosy sense of comfort for you this Sunday morning, and nor should they. But I think this is an important thing for us to consider as we think about what it means to be tempted or to be put to proof under a trial and how we can learn to continually prepare ourselves and bring the right attitude into our ongoing Christian walk. So turn now in your Bibles um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
where we read this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So this is language to identify the Paul people is writing to. So here this is the church in Corinth with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. In other words, they were God's people, just like you are now. Nevertheless, he goes on, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit a kind of immorality I can't go into with family viewing, um, as some of them did, um, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So here the Apostle Paul is taking examples from the history of Israel in the Old Testament and bringing the application of warnings to us in the church. We can see from this passage that God disciplines sinners who fall into temptation, can't we? Whether idolatry, immorality, or just simply grumbling, the consequences as a direct result of those sins are severe. Of the examples he gives here, one is from the book of Exodus, um, and the others are from the book of Numbers. And now the book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible, back towards the beginning of the Old Testament. After the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, um, we come to the book of Exodus, uh, where God leads his people out of Egypt and redeems them from slavery. And then the book of Leviticus, where the priesthood was established together with the regulations for the Israelites' relationship with God. And we then get to the book of Numbers. Numbers starts with a big census of God's people, which is where we get the name Numbers from. But the Hebrew name for this book is Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. There are a lot of numbers in parts of the book, but in the wilderness is a much better description of the main content. It describes the journeying of the Israelites in the wilderness between being set free from slavery in Egypt and entering into the promised land. And it's this book the Apostle Paul chooses to reference as a warning to the church in Corinth about falling into temptation. And you can see the parallels. In the story of Israel, God's people have been set free from a hopeless situation from being slaves of the Egyptians by a mighty work of God. Then they have the means of their relationship with God established, together with regulations for their worship, and then journey through a hostile wilderness on their way to the promised land. And so in our context, the church too has been set free from a hopeless situation. Our slavery, not to a people group, but to sin, by a mighty work of God in Christ our mediator, and we too journey through the hostilities of this world on our way to our promised land, our heavenly home, where a place is being prepared for us. 
But while, yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, amen, praise the Lord, and not by our works or good deeds, we're not to just simply check out and await our inheritance. Our faith is put to proof again and again, as was the Israelites in the wilderness. And Paul says here that we have an account of the trials they faced, their repeated failings and the consequences of those failings as an example and a warning. So that if anyone thinks they are standing firm, if anyone is feeling that the Christian life is cushy and is brimming with overconfidence, be careful that you don't fall. Or as the English Standard Version has it, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Look at what happened to God's chosen people in the wilderness. This isn't something to trifle with. The Lord will judge. God disciplines sinners and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let me ask you an important question, a personal question. Are you saved? Have you been redeemed from slavery to sin? Have you repented of your sin and turned to put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Don't deceive yourself, examine yourself so you can proclaim with confidence the faith you possess in your heart. Don't be numbered amongst those of the Israelites who were saved from Egypt to simply perish in the wilderness, but know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and know that your Redeemer lives and intercedes for us. So firstly then, God disciplines sinners. That was the hard bit. Okay, so now on to some good news, because secondly, God disarms Satan, who we see here in this line of the Lord's Prayer as the evil one, the one who brings about that which is hurtful in effect or influence. So who is the evil one? Well, you need to know that you have a very real and powerful enemy. He is known as the devil or Satan, or here the evil one, and he is your adversary and your accuser. He hates God, and he hates you and me. He was the serpent in the garden back in Genesis 3, manipulating our first parents to doubt God's word and fall into temptation and sin. He's there to accuse Job before God and the high priest Joshua in the book of Zechariah. He's the old serpent and the dragon in Revelation and described as being like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He came to tempt the Lord Jesus himself and put him to proof in the wilderness. He will offer you money, fame, power and influence and happiness in this world. Or he will keep you trapped in addiction or poverty. Or he will manage your contentedness if you see yourself as a middle-class, morally upstanding citizen, thank you very much. If he thinks it will keep you from God, keep you from salvation in Christ and jeopardize your eternal destiny. There is a war in this life, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But God can deliver us from evil, from this evil one, rescue us from him, preserve us from him. He was disarmed and put to shame at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus Christ the righteous lived the perfect life, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and died in our place for our sins, a transaction was made. The debt of sin that stood against us that incurs the wrath of God, the just and righteous anger of God towards sinners, was paid for by the blood of Christ. 
If you are a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have no option but to be ruled by sin and be its slave. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2 from verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So here he's speaking of spiritual powers of the evil one, Satan and demons and the like. In him, he continues, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. So that's the old you before you became a Christian that was powerless against sin. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So Christ circumcises or cuts away the old self. It's vivid imagery. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's the old you, God made you alive with Christ. New creation. He forgave us all our sins. All our sins, past, present and future having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, again, that's the spiritual forces of darkness, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. By taking away our sin that stood against us and condemned us, by taking it away and nailing it to the cross of Jesus, God disarmed Satan. He took away the lethal weapon the evil one could use against us. The charge of our legal indebtedness, the sin that was storing up God's judgment against us. And now Revelation chapter 12 from verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So we've seen that God firstly disciplined sinners, and secondly now he disarms Satan. He was disarmed and put to open shame at the cross and hurled down. But for those of us who dwell on the earth, as it says in Revelation, which according to the latest data is everyone here this morning and everyone watching online, for us he is filled with fury and there is a war raging on. And that brings us on to the third point this morning, because God delivers saints. This means that God rescues his people from evil and brings us safely into his heavenly kingdom. I'm using the word saints as we see it in the New Testament, where it refers to um, all of those who belong to Christ, the whole church, uh, all of God's people, anyone who is a Christian, not just a select group recognized for certain things. So turn finally, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to see here the Apostle Paul again, 
showing what it means to be delivered from evil. Here, Paul is writing to Timothy, his co-worker in the gospel, whom he considered to be his child in the faith. This letter was written by Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome, shortly before he died a martyr's death under the Roman Emperor Nero. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here Paul describes a great deal of evil that's been done against him. Things that are bad in character and things that are hurtful um, in effect or influence. And he sums it all up by saying, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Or to put it another way, the Lord will deliver me from evil. So what does that mean? Well, let's start by saying what it doesn't necessarily mean. It doesn't necessarily mean that nothing bad should happen to us. It doesn't mean we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we won't face persecution. It doesn't mean life will be easy, and it doesn't mean we will be kept from difficulty. How do we know this? Well, look at Paul's life. He's just described a whole stack of difficulties he was facing in this passage. And we know from elsewhere in his writings that over the course of his ministry, he also suffered beatings, imprisonments, a stoning, three shipwrecks. He was always on the move, always in danger, facing hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold, expense, and anxiety. So we know then what it doesn't mean. But what does it mean? And why should that encourage us if we too may end up facing all the difficulties Paul faced? We see what it means from verse 17. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Or in other words, God delivering him from every evil attack and bringing him safely into his heavenly kingdom means that God will achieve his purposes through Paul in his life and ministry. And afterwards, that is when Paul does eventually die, God will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom, having preserved him from being snatched away by the devil. And by extension, the same is true for us. As we turn to our holy God, our Father in heaven, seeking first his kingdom, saying, your will, Lord, not mine, relying on him for our daily needs and standing forgiven from our sins, God will achieve his purposes through our lives. Our lives will be given to his glory and he will work it for our good as we are slowly transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then when we die, or when Jesus returns in glory, whichever comes first, God will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom, having preserved us from being snatched away. 
So we've seen that God disciplines sin, he disarms Satan, and he delivers saints. So understanding all of this, what is required of us to pray this prayer? How can we move beyond the repetition of a familiar phrase and bring the right attitude to these profound words of petition? And for what are we asking? Well, don't let me be tempted away from my marriage and give my heart and body to another. Don't let me be lackluster as a parent. Don't let me just fall in with the crowd at work and gossip or fiddle my expenses. Don't let me shy away from opportunities to share my faith. Don't let entertainment draw me away from quality time in the word and in study to know God better. Don't let the cares of this world keep me from giving and serving in a ministry. Don't let weariness keep me from fellowship with other believers. Don't let fear constrain my effectiveness for God's kingdom. Don't let a lack of attentiveness keep me from prayer. Don't let a need for busyness keep me from pursuing silence and solitude to be alone with God. Don't let the great British sewing bee keep me from coming to encounter. Right? Have I missed anyone out? It's almost overwhelming, isn't it? Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to take this stuff seriously. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let my marriage be filled with love after the pattern of God's good design. Give me conviction and endurance as I parent my children. Let me stand out at work for my honesty and integrity. Give me courage to share my faith with friends and neighbors. Let me value reading the Bible more than a box set Give me a heart of generosity and self-sacrifice. Give me an affectionate desire for the people in my life group. Let perfect love cast out my fear and equip me for God's kingdom purposes. Let my prayer life be a time of focus and breakthrough. Still my heart as I wait in the quiet in the presence of God. Remind me that we have TV on demand now and I can catch up with the sewing bee at any time. And keep in my mind that carving out quality time to pray together is vital for the spiritual health of our church. So the attitude we should bring to pray this prayer in earnest is one of humility. Far from taking God's discipline lightly and his grace for granted, we need to show our utter dependence on him. Lord, rescue us from the trial. Preserve us from temptation. And don't let our faith be put to proof beyond what we can bear. And trust in his promise that the Lord will rescue us from every evil attack and will bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. But more on that next week. So let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, do not let us be brought into trial or temptation that results in a fall but rather preserve us against and save us from the evil one before whom we are helpless without your deliverance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.